Flipsters and finger popping daddies. My name is David Jackson, and you have now tuned in to the Vicki Abelson Show, Game Changers. Yeah. Throw your dice. Never know what's going to happen. But at least it's only going to be on two cameras. So, how bad can it get? Now, Vicki, are you available yet? Because, you know, I'm going to go ahead and play a strong chord. Let's see if you can hear that. I can hear that and I like it. And I didn't even hear Steve Ferroni. All I'm hearing is you, David, and I like it. And I'm going to push this button because there's some sort of somewhere or another in the in the on the middle of my screen that's right in front of your beautiful face. So got it. There, there. Hey, David, do you know how to turn off your notifications? We'll just act like the people aren't here yet, and we'll just pretend that it's just us. Because no, I just, yeah, if you can, well, don't worry about it if you can't. Just ignore the people that are trying to get you, because you're such a popular guy. And you are, you are so, I don't know if you know, but you probably know how beloved you are. You know, don't you? I know that I have one of the most delicious and delightful, massive extended families. I know that. People very... adore you. Absolutely. The people who, it's like everybody I know who knows you, which now I'm finding out is everybody. I don't know what planet I was living on, but everybody from Jerry Lopez to Terry and Teresa to, um, to uh, oh my God, so many people uh, um, dropped me notes today to tell me how you're their favorite person and how much they adore you. Um no, you're no. you're you're very beloved. You are Jerry Lopez, you are you know that you're you're swimming in high cotton there. You know, Jer I I love Jerry. Have you have you gone and sat in with with um with his band in Las Vegas? I have not. I have only heard him, and every time he opens his mouth or plays the guitar, music comes out. He's just delightful. He has this, the Fat City Horns. Wait, what are they called? They're called Santa Fe and the Fat City Horns. And they play every Monday night in Las Vegas. And whenever we're up there, Snuffy goes and sits in with them. And he puts together this group of musicians that are people that play with everybody else. And on Monday nights, they're off. So they come and play with Jerry. And they are the funkiest funky. Jerry is funky. They're He's fabulous. Yeah, yeah. It, it he's really he's fantastic. They're fabulous. Sensors on this show. Do I what? You have sensors. There are no fucking sensors on this show, David. <laughs> <laughs> you can say whatever the hell you want. <laughs> as far as I need to go. We but. have we have no sensors, and I have a foul mouth, so you're in good company. And well, maybe not good company. We'll see how that goes. But oh, is that little dinging? Is that coming through? It, yeah, I hear your dinging because you, your notifications. Are you we're gonna, people? We're we're gonna we're gonna be on people. Boy, Phil Rosenthal does that. Are are you on a Mac? I am a MacBook Pro. Okay, so if you go up in the top of your thing there, you'll see that there's these two little bars, one going one way, one going the other way. And if you click it, it says you can see focus up there. And if you click that focus, you can hit a do not disturb thing, and right. it'll turn all that stuff off. Wait a minute. So this, you know, we learn things. We 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 live, we learn, we 
we do. So what if we learn them while everybody's watching? So what? That's well, a good words you say. There's okay. So at the very top of your screen, you know where the date is and everything. Right next to the date where it says Wednesday, September twenty seventh, there are two bars going in opposite directions. And if you click on those, you'll see on the right it says focus. And if you yeah. click on that, you can click on do not disturb for an hour or whatever. Oh, isn't that the greatest? Isn't that the coolest thing? My oh. daughter had to teach me that. It's a good thing. Learn a little something each and every day. Isn't, isn't it wonderful? <laughs> Life is wonderful. Yeah, it is. The alternative is unacceptable. So I want to I want to learn about you, David, because I I know very little. But what I've heard, um, I've heard some some pretty juicy stories about. All right, before we get into anything, I want to know because Terry told me yesterday that you're sitting there with George ha George fucking Harrison, and he's got some pot, and John Lennon walks in with five cops. Now wait, what are you doing with George Harrison? Where are you? And what? Tell me this story. Okay. Okay. This is really good. <laughs> I like it already. Because it's, uh, I was at Columbia recording and the engineer. Yeah. This story by, oh no, it was Gene Clark that told me the story. He was recording with the birds. I was not there. Gene Clark was there. And I reiterated, I hope I've not reiterated the story as if I were sitting there, because I wasn't. But Gene said, I was in a group of Gene Clark in 1969 called Dillard and Clark. The Dillard yes. Clark. Yes. Dillard and Gene Clark. Gene was in the Burns. It's their first session at, I believe, at uh, Columbia. And in see now, I heard this all wrong. I heard it's you, and I heard it's Capitol Records. So right away, we're doing telephone. The story's changing. <laughs> exactly. Now the only interesting thing is a lot of people there who might know about uh, have been in in Columbia Studio A. The the door is right in front of the couch. And then okay. You the couch and you go back to the up uh, to the raised uh, uh, st studio booth behind you, and then and the windows right in front. But there's a very small little section there to walk through. And uh, as you come in the door of the studio, well, uh, the Beatles are sitting there. George brings out a, 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 a rather large amount of pot, Gene says, is rolling a joint. The door flies open. Gene looks up. This is according to Gene. Yeah. He looks up. He sees a cop. He, he says to himself, oh, heck, and looks down at George and there's no pot there. And the police come in, they're chasing a, subs a suspect from the streets on all in Hollywood and uh, on Sunset Boulevard. And they, they, they think the guy has run into Columbia Studios, but apparently he is not. So they don't stay very long. But that, so they turn around and they leave because the, the suspect is not in this room. And so the door closes. Gene looks back at George, and the pot is back on his lap. He's, they had stuffed it under the couch. Apparently, the Beatles had had these things happen more than once. <laughs> you think? <laughs> and, uh, so Gene Clark told me that story. I wasn't there. I so wish I had. I've never been. I've only been in the room with Ringo one time on a television show, but I still didn't get the meeting. Wait, what? Yeah. 
But you wrote the No No song. I did with Hoyt Axton, but yeah. on the road. And should I tell you that story? It's yeah, just... tell me the story. So Hoyt Axton, I don't know if everybody. I've met Ringo, and I'm not deserving. <laughs> Go ahead. Not true. You have a little item called beauty. You see? Oh no, that had nothing to. Well, thank you, but that yeah. Anyway, go ahead. <laughs> so anyway, uh, so Hoyt Axton. There was only one rule of the road, and that was never let Hoyt drive his motorhome alone. <laughs> because I don't know. Just because he might do some nuts and have it in the past. <laughs> so the rule was don't let Hoyt drive alone. We had a full crew that time. We had three background singers and a whole band and stuff. And I'm asleep in the room in, in the aisle of the Cortez Motorhome, which was one of those metal boxes with a flat front, which I never figured out why one would make a motorhome without a slanted front, but that's just me. And uh, I wake up having napped or something, like midnight or one o'clock in the morning, and there's nobody sitting in the driver's seat. Uh-oh. Yeah. So I grab in the little spot right there near where my head was, I grab Hoyt's little 1914 Martin Parlor guitar, go up to the passenger seat and sit there and I'm playing Ubaldi Ubalda. Ba da 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 da. No, 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 I don't let Hoyt drive alone, was I think what I was singing. And so now 20 minutes later, 15, I don't know, sometime later. We come to a T in the road. We're in Kansas or Missouri or somewhere in the middle of the United States. We come to a T and uh and wait, and, you're literally singing the words, no, 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 I don't let Hoy drive alone. You're like saying like, I'm just saying, I don't I don't really remember. I'm not even sure. But something know. like that. <laughs> yeah, something like that. And uh, but I am saying blah do blah da. I know the melody. I know that. And uh we come to a T in the road and we can't, we look on the map and we can't turn right and go and triangulate back down to where we're supposed to be, we're heading to Nashville. The only thing we can do is turn around. We're 75 miles in the wrong direction. So Hoyt, being, having been driven alone, driving alone, can't blame anybody. He was really good at blaming people for stuff that had gone wrong. <laughs> he turns the Cortez motor uh, around, and we're driving back. We have to go back to our uh, departure point, 75 miles. And so now we're 150 miles the wrong direction, three and a half hours, three hours of ish. And in order to get back to the right, correct road. So as we're driving back, Hoyt is angry, but he can't be angry at anybody but himself. <laughs> That's not good. Behind the seat and opens the the little thing, uh, the little uh, cabinet back there, and reaches, gets a bottle of Everclear, and he starts to open the cap as he's driving. And I said, "No, no, 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 no! I don't drink it no more. No, no, I don't drink it no more." He puts the cap back on and throws it out the window. True story. Wow. <laughs> Let's go by. I'm still singing. And he reaches down, he grabs a bag of pot, he's gonna roll a joint, start rolling a joint. And I say, No, 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 I don't smoke it no more. No, no, I don't smoke it no more. To the melody of Ubla Di Ubla Da. And he throws it out the window. 
He, what? Yeah. So by the time we get to Nashville, <laughs> a day later or something, we have this song. We go into the studio a couple of days later, we record the song, we put it on a cassette with some other songs, remember cassettes? Yeah. And uh, with some other songs, and we send it to Richard Perry, who is producing Ringo through Hoyt's lawyer, who is having a dinner with Richard Perry and Ringo, a couple other people, and Ringo's wife. And Barbara. Uh, yeah. And uh, and so. No, is he married to Barbara at that point, or is he still with Maureen? It was the beginning of their. Uh huh. Yeah. Is he sober at this point? Is he uh, saying no, no, no? Good question. Oh, okay. <laughs> good question. I don't believe as how, and there, I'll tell you why in a second. So uh, we put it on a cassette, we send it to them, and a couple of weeks later, they're having this dinner. Uh, Friday night, we're in Nashville in some motel. Jimmy Buffett is sleeping on my, on my, on the floor with some pillows that we've laid down. Anyway, and the, and the phone rings, and a number of Hoyt's in Hoyt's room, which everybody always was, and the phone rings, and it's Hoyt's lawyer, whose name escapes me because he was a busthead. And uh, but he says, "Hey, good news, they really like the No-No song. Bad news, it's to the melody of Ugla Dio Da, you jerks. We've completely forgotten. <laughs> we hadn't changed the melody. <laughs> really stupid. And." Uh, and the second bad news is Ringo had had a little something to drink. He and his, his uh, and Barbara, wife or not, I don't know, had gotten into a little tiff. She's on her way to New York. He's on his way to London. The album is is pushed back probably six months. We figure it'll never happen. Six months. No, later, wait, wait. Do you name it the No No song? Yeah. Yeah, you name it the No No song. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Use the melody of who bloody who blood out. Just because we forgot. And uh, <laughs> so by, we're back in the same hotel. It's a different Friday night, as Friday nights can be. And the <laughs> same lawyer. And they said, the, the, and it's only good news. The album is back on. They still want to record because we had changed the version, we changed the melody sent them a different thing and it's back on and they did record it and that's the story and, that story. and we don't know if that was the reason that Ringo became sober it's possible yeah wait a minute now you're taking credit for Ringo getting sober credit because he, at that point I, mean, I forgot to mention that at the dinner he got they they got into a little tiff and he right assaulted her slightly. I don't I don't know to what degree. But not long after that he became sober. If it wow. was that reason, I don't really know. And uh, he probably doesn't remember either. But uh anyway, it was you know it was around the same period of time. Seven wow. Years. Yeah. So that's and that was a monster hit for all of you. For 10 days. It was number one for 10 days. It was number one. That's a pretty damn good thing, number yeah. one. Yeah. You had another number one. We're going to get to like where you came from, but wait, we have to talk about this because I've heard there's some controversy with your other number one, with uh, Joy to the World, yeah? Yeah. Uh, what called, I've got a thousand dollars. 
And uh, how and long the, have you been working with Hoyt at this point? When? Oh, good question. I just wrote something yesterday, if I may. Yes, you may. Please. Very short. And uh, so I wrote this yesterday, 1959, Orange County, moved from New York to Orange County, um, found a Martin parlor guitar in Ruth uh, Sullivan's closet, beautiful little parlor guitar, probably the same age as Hoyt's guitar when we wrote the no-no song, but that's a different story. And there were all folk clubs in Orange County at the time. And so I used to go to them, and somebody gave me a record of Eric Darling. Anybody remember Eric Darling? Oh, I don't think so. Wonderful folk guy. He was in the, one of the last guys in the Weavers after people. Oh, wow. A fascinating guy. And this, uh, there's a solo record of him, which is still one of the all-time favorite recordings of an individual sitting in uh, Columbia Studio A in New York with playing a banjo and singing a song, playing a six-string guitar and singing a song, playing a 12-string and singing a song. One mic, one mic in that big studio in Columbia, just one of the most gorgeous records ever. Eric Darling called True Religion. Somebody gave me this record. I was startled by this music. And then found Gibson and Camp, Bob Gibson and, what the heck? I can't think of his name, Camp. He became an actor after that. Changed his name. Anyway, they made an album in 61 or 62, The Gate of Horn. And if I may. Yes, please. Uh, Shel Silverstein said, Gibson, Camp, and Brown, Herb Brown was the bass player. And they were up there singing at the Gate of Horn, shouting and playing and stomping and wailing and yelling and barking and dropping raw eggs on the floor and yelling at Ray about the lighting and wearing straw hats and drinking beer and joking with the audience and doing encore after encore. And everybody in the club was screaming and it was great. And if the walls had collapsed right out there, right then and there, nobody, it would have been very poetic. But they didn't. So, so, <laughs> and that album was literally akin to the to the Beatles. It was just it just swept the whole folk music thing by storm. It was so powerful and funny and anyway, it was quite lovely. 62. And then I met Hoyt Axton in one of those folk clubs. So wow. I ran to the circus. I ran off to Hoyt because he was <laughs> Shell Silverstein. I love Shell Silverstein. He wrote The Giving Tree. What a great. Uh... Yeah. yeah, Silverstein was just amazing. And that period in Chicago was just you know, fabulous. Anyway, I ran off to Hoyt. You ran summer. off to Hoyt. Yeah, he was up there with his foot on a stool. He never had a guitar strap. He put his foot on a stool and put the guitar on his knee. And he was jaw dropping to not just me, to everybody. Just something about this guy it was so huge and fabulous and uh and so that's where that started and i and then so i'm in high school were you, were you his you were his bass player i became his, his uh, a piano player bass player colleague multi-instrumentalist person yeah i would often play piano with my right hand and my bass with my left wow which i did was you know jackson brown for a while and jd salder for a while 
we're, we're going to talk about that too. So, okay. So how, wait, can do you have those two instruments? How do you do that? Oh, I just mash on the bass strings and turn the volume up loud enough so you don't have to. Where is the bass sitting? Do you have it around your neck? How are you doing that? I'm sitting at the piano. Kind of like this. Wow. And uh, yeah, I was a cheap band. <laughs> so, so, okay. So, so tell us the story before we get off Hoy. So, Joy to the World. Oh, yeah. One of the most monster hits of, of my time. Um, what had you guys write that and what happened with that? So, off and on with Hoyt, along with playing a bunch of other people when he wasn't working and stuff, but then he would call every now and then. And one time he called me and said, I've got a thousand dollars, all that's left in my account. On the, on, this is probably a Saturday. He said, a, a week from Monday, they're going to show up and they're going to take my Cadillac and they're going to repossess my house. And so I got a thousand dollars. I've got five songs I want to cut. And uh, would you do that? Rehearse at the house with the Hollywood Living Room Band, we were called, and uh, rehearse for four days and go record on the fifth day on Friday, which we did. The whole time that we're rehearsing, Hoyt is walking around to the then hit on the radio, Brown Eyed Girl. One time, about 20 years ago, I was able to recall how Hoyt was able to get into the rhythm of the recording of Brown-Eyed Girl, his words, joy to the world, all the boys and girls, joy to the fishes in the deep blue sea, joy to you and me, into the rhythm of Brown of the chorus of Brown-Eyed Girl. And it, the two don't really match, but but he he had this odd thing. I have so to I, think about that. It doesn't work. But one time I was able to remember it correctly, but never since. But anyway, so the whole week he's going around, Brown Eyed Girl was a hit. He's singing this thing on breaks and stuff. And uh, but to a of just a one-note melody, and it was the rhythm that was of interest to him, to Brown Eyed Girl. He was able to get at this very odd rhythm and get it to fit. It was quite interesting. Well, I love the sentiment. That's been my, you know, mantra. Sure. All the boys and girls. And uh, so I just, you know, go on down to that. So we get to the studio on Friday. We record the five songs. At the end of each take, that was the, pardon me, I don't think we did more than, at the most, three takes of any one song. Can I just stop here for a second, David? Where did Jeremiah was a bullfrog come from? Where did, how does that get in the song? Well, Point for a good five years previous to that, mm -hmm. had been collecting frogs. People would bring him. He had a massive collection, a couple hundred, little, all kinds of little frogs and lighter, frog lighters and all kinds of stuff. And uh, just because he talked about about frogs and Jeremiah, he had put those those two concepts in a couple of other songs that weren't really very interesting. The songs weren't. And uh, so he'd been utilizing this frog thing. <laughs> we get on Friday, we cut the five songs, 
when we found the take of each of the five, the engineer would put the, the board mix onto a cassette and we'd go on to the next song and he'd do the same thing. So about the end of, uh, and he only had enough to pay this guy till six o'clock. It's now 5.30 and we've got all the songs on one, on one cassette and we've got a half an hour that Hoyt has paid for. And this time thing had been of, of uh, consistent vocalization throughout the week. So I said, we've got a half an hour that you pay for. Let me go out in the studio and I'd like, let me work on this joy, uh, uh, joy of the world thing. So I go out there and I spend maybe 10, 15 minutes and I come up with a verse melody and a verse idea. And, and I finally, wait, come on out here. And everything is all set up. And I'd been playing piano on that session. So he came out and I played him what I had. Joy to the world, all the boys and girls. And then I went, da, da, da. And I looked up at him. And on the Leslie speaker was a pad of paper and a um, pencil. And he just started writing. He wrote those verses, boom, 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 just like that, without even thinking because they were kind of reiterations of previous concepts and ideas that he had used other places. Okay. They didn't come out of nowhere. Right. They were, he was using them all along. They were, they were just hating until that moment. Best they, ideas. I got it. So we, we, he, he wrote the verses. He asked the engineer to put the push record. We push record. He and I, he sang, I played put it on the cassette, drove to Hoyt's house afterwards in Benedict Canyon and the whole band and we're playing the cassette like everybody used to do on there. We love hearing ourselves. <laughs> and, uh, and Floyd Sneed was the drummer with Three Dog Night mm -hmm. and he actually may still be, I don't know. Anyway, he lived up the street and he was driving back. He saw all these cars in front of Hoyt's house. So he parks and he comes in and he says, what's going on? Just as Joy to the World is being played. So he listens to about half the song and he gets on the, goes over to Hoyt's phone and he calls Danny, the lead singer, his name just escaped me, Danny Hutton. Danny Hutton. And he calls Danny and he says, listen to this. And he holds the phone up. Joy of the World is playing. He holds the phone up and uh, and Danny says, oh, Carmen, I can't leave. I got to take care of the kids. Can you come over here and bring that? So we all get in cars. We all go over to Danny Hutton's house. And we play the whole cassette again. We get to Joy of the World. And Danny, halfway through, calls Richie Podoir, who was Three Dog Nights producer. Now wait a minute. One one was already out in the hit. They they already were a thing. They were already big stars. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. They were big stars. I don't remember. I, one is. I remember one was their first. Right. That was their first. Yeah. One is yeah. the one. Uh, right. Yeah. yeah. So they had that already. And right. So and he holds the phone up again to the recording of Joy of the World, just piano and vocal. And Richie says, I'll call you back. Calls back a few minutes later, says, okay, we got the studio for Tuesday. And- uh, This all happens in one day? And, uh, and so we wrote, recorded, and sold the song 
the same day. Oh my God. Something. And I knew instantly it was going to be a hit. I knew it instantly. You did? Yeah. And so the other thing that Hoyt was doing that whole week was talking about the joys of publishing. And he was going to go on the following Saturday from this recording day Friday. He was going to go to Capitol and and uh, and pitch these songs to get him a publishing deal so he could and ask them to give him cash, which they did. That's kind of weird. So that he could stand on the stoop on Monday morning and pay the the mortgage guy for the house and the guy for the that was coming to repossess the Cadillac, which he did. He paid him cash and was able to keep his house in his Cadillac. And he got the deal with with Capitol. And that's and we but we wrote, recorded, and sold that song in one day. That is an unbelievable. All right. Now, I don't want to bring up a sore point, and I don't know if this is true, but from what Terry told me, you weren't exactly done right on that deal. Is that so? Well, the previous week had been talking about the joys of publishing. That's where the money is. So, three weeks later, we're playing at the Troubadour. Hoyt and I had written a bunch of songs together previously, Mm -hmm. had a standard songwriter contract, which he out on the Dempsey dumpster at 3.30 in the morning after we'd loaded out of playing at the Troubadour. There's a street light up above and he throws it down on the Dempsey dumpster and says, here, sign this for Joy of the World. And I said, I'm not going to sign that, comma, I want to talk about publishing. I want a, a new contract because I knew it was going to be a hit. I knew it instantly. Wow. And I want to get I want to involve myself in the publishing. I want to talk to you about that. So I'm not going to sign this regular songwriter contract. Never came up. He only heard, I'm not going to sign that. Oh. And about a week later, he's on the Carson show and he says, Carson says, You want to sing a song? He says, Yeah, I'm going to sing this new song that David P. Jackson and I just wrote. And he sings Joy of the World. So I have evidence that we wrote it, that he knows we wrote it. But when it came time to make the deal, I my name. No, what did that do to your relationship? Uh, no problem there because being the hippie I was, I said, "Oh, we'll write another hit." Yeah, we'll write another joy to the world. Of course we will. A year or two years later, so I went okay. But then about twenty-one, twenty-two years go by. And I find out I'm not doing any quite any favors, which is a whole nother group, group of stories. But anyway, so I sue him and I find a lawyer to take it on contingency. We lost on the business of latches, which is the amount of time it took me to bring the suit, which was 22 years. So we lost the case. It has to go to the Supreme Court to get overturned that particular judgment. Otherwise, nobody can bring a suit. Is there up. evidence still from Johnny Carson that he said that? Does that still exist? Yeah, sadly, it still exists. Somebody's going to overturn it at some point, the, the uh, lower court decision in the Supreme Court. But it hadn't happened yet. And but what what did your, how did your relationship with Hoyt continue after that? We, uh, we wrote the No No song. I didn't get any, any uh, monies nor any uh, paper from the Hoyt's publishing for a year. So I had my lawyer send him a letter saying literally, 
could we have a little, you know, a little piece of paper saying what the heck happened? Why don't we have any money? Well, White's lawyer was stealing from White. White's lawyer and his um, accountant were in cahoots and were stealing. They ended up stealing six million, like this told. Oh my! So they covered this up and made me the bad guy. And uh, how did you become the bad guy? I don't know. I never figured it out, but it did sever our relationship until years later, which is a whole nother story. And I've gone much too long on this point. So I'm going to. Okay, so we'll we'll move on from Hoyt. So let's let's backtrack a little bit because I want to know how you started out being a music. I don't even know how you got into music. Was do you come from a musical family? Were your parents musical? How did it start for you, David? My father was an accountant. Oh, that's not very musical, is it? No, no one tell me anything about accounting. I'm sad to say, I'm still horrible with money. <laughs> but my mother, Darlene Van Horn, was absolutely delightful and and my dad got mad at her because she could light up a room and he couldn't he mm -hmm. and uh but she was just wonderful and a, not a great piano player but a really good um musical and uplifting person she's just delicious she used to say dave i don't know what i'd do without you but i'd rather <laughs> yeah. Anyway, and uh, she was great. Darlene Van Horn, fabulous, in New York in the 30s. Wow. But anyway, so now I'm in high school. I find this Martin guitar in this closet and uh, learn to play a few chords, go to school. There's a guy in school named Scott Thistlethwaite. That's a mouthful. And uh, he, in Canada, their schools were one year shorter than ours. So he had, when he moved to the States, he had to have one more year of senior year, which he'd already had all of the, instru the uh, instruction of and for, but he had to take this. And so he was a year older than everybody and handsome as can be, vibrant, br brilliant, funny, a great singer of skiffle songs. Remember skiffle? Kinda. Americans don't know much about skiffle, but that's where Paul McCartney started. Was the skiffle? Kinda. Yeah. Losing my head. Will you ask for more? That's a skiffle style. That song, '64, is a skiffle style that McCartney's magnificent at. Anyway, nobody in America knew then nor now much about skiffle music, English music. But Scott Thistlethwaite did, but he didn't play any instrument. So I knew a few chords on the guitar. So we did um, assemblies. Scott and Dave, we were called. How inventive. <laughs> and, uh, so I started playing guitar with Scott. And, uh, and then when, I, when the dance band high school needed a bass player, I was told that this is a, an upright bass, this is a G, a D, an A, and an E string. God bless you. This is Thank first position, and that's all I know. Go up there and play with the dance band. So I did, and then became a bass player, doing the same stuff, playing with people who didn't play instruments. 
or needed a bass player. And that's what I've always done, fortunately, with great people and with people who are great songwriters. I've gotten around the greatest songwriter, Hoyt, for one, but Jackson Brown and J.D. Souther. And we're going to, oh, and what about piano? How did that come into the uh, mix? Mom, mom said, uh, I would play the, the piano, which I have in the other room, my grandmother's piano, and I'd play it like this. I was that short. <laughs> that. And mom said, we're going to give you accordion lessons. So she did. She had me take accordion lessons. And the accordion. I love it. And that's the keyboard. And uh, and so, you know, like that. I'm not a, a, a very good piano player. I have a thing that when I actually smoke enough pot and drink enough beer, I can actually, you know, be kind of musical. But it takes <laughs> an awful lot of... <laughs> Okay, so 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 you you started out. If I have this right, you started out in Fresno. You went to New York. You come back to. You're not playing music in New York, though. You're too young, aren't you? Correct. Right. I'm just going to high school, and then we move out. And along the lifeful story about why we got to Anaheim, but we ended up in Anaheim. And uh, and after ten days, mom says, "Let's move back to Stockton." Let's go back to Stockton. We'll go back to our old life. And, and Ruth, the lady with whom we were staying, and and myself said, let's not. And I'm so happy that we didn't. As Brad Raisin, who is a delightful fellow and a good songwriter and a current friend, said the other day when I told him we were going to Marrakesh on Friday, he said, I love Marrakesh. It's a thousand years old if it's a day. And before that, I thought a primitive place was Fresno. <laughs> okay, so we're going to fast forward for a minute and go back. Why are you going to Marrakesh this week, David? Oh, a great company called castlesandconcerts.com. And Tom Montgomery started this company 20-something years ago. He's a historian, an art docent, a great musician, visionary delightful fellow and uh, very humble. And you wouldn't notice him if you were standing here talking, none of those qualities would seem logical until you experienced him. And he started taking people on these trips. Uh, he would find castles and uh, we would put on concerts every night, which is what we still do 20 something years later. It's I know Dean Parks is going as well. Who else is going with you? Uh, the drummer, oh. James Gatt, not James Gatt. Is it James Gatt? No. Uh, Frank Sinatra's drummer. Oh, cool. Monica Mancini. He's married to Monica Mancini, who is Henry's daughter. Wow. She's going to sing some Mancini stuff. He's going to play the drums. And uh, and he was with Sinatra for a long time and with Count Basie for a long time. And a wonderful guy, great drummer. Rick Fields. And so Tom is Tom always takes between five and ten musicians, and 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 then we make up a concert every night, different. So you go you go to this castle, and how long are you there, and how many concerts do you do? Uh, we play every night after dinner, and uh, put on a, a nice show every night, and it's different every night, featuring different people. Billy, Billy Valentine has gone on many trips and is always a huge big feature. Mm -hmm. 
and uh, uh, it's always different. And what else can I? Uh, and how uh, long are you there? Twelve days. But we're also going in out into the desert. We're not going to the end of the Atlas Mountains. We were going to, but we're not going to now. Going to. So we go to a couple of places, but it's usually starting in one. The bulk of the trip is in one beautiful spot, and we're in the Kasbah. And are there very exotic people that you're playing for, I would imagine? Well, he takes, he finds people who, A, have the money. The trips are not cheap. I bet. They have the time. Mm -hmm. and that's usually older people. A few younger people, meaning late 50s, 60s, that, that have those two qualities. And then enjoy travel. That's another ingredient. And uh, so many people are recurring on these trips. They've been going for some years. So between 50, 60, and 300 people. This trip is about 100, I think. It takes a lot of people. And he finds a wow. place to put it all up. Yeah. And and are you are you treated well? Is it is it a, a wonderful experience for y'all? It takes a little while to get used to the whippings. <laughs> You know, it's uh, sometimes it's not just dirty water. It actually has uh, soda water. We can have fresh soda water. We can have and a few, few vittles. No, no. He treats us like like the people that are paying the money. He treat, wow. we, all, we all are treated equally. Lovely. You know, he rents horses. We all get to ride horses. Whatever. Sounds He's, lovely. The best job in the world. Thank you, Lord. Appreciate it. That sounds lovely. Okay, let's so let's backpedal now because I have to talk to you about Andy Williams because when I heard about that, I lost my mind. My father was a crooner. He was a Catskill Mountains Borschfeld singer and master of ceremonies. And he looked very much like Andy Williams and sounded kind of in that vein. So I am... May I ask your father's name? His name was Larry Katz. He passed from Alzheimer's some years ago, about 10 years ago. Um, but he was at uh, in those hotels in the Borscht Belt, but he he was handsome like Andy, sang like Andy, had that career. And we watched the Andy Williams show. I, I, I you were in my living room and I did not know that how how. And I heard that you were like you were like the thing they wanted to give you your own show and you said no. So tell me, how did this happen in your life? How did you go from being a bass player to getting on the Andy Williams show and being a comedian and a musician and being offered your own show. Well, firstly, I didn't say no, by the way. It just okay. Happened. But uh, Terry gave me a lot of misinformation. I'm gonna really have words with Terry after this. I tried to throw him, but it hasn't it didn't go very far. Anyway, uh the troubadour. I became the house bass player at the Troubadour in 63. Okay. And opening for Bob Gibson, who was this previous thing that Shel Silverstein wrote, wrote about. Right. He was a hero of mine. I got to play with a hero, holy cow. Pretty, you know, pretty good stuff. And uh, a few months later, the Christie Minstrels, remember them? Of course. They've been on the first season of the Andy Williams show which was a trial season from NBC. He said, we'll give you one season, let's see how it goes. Well, it went well. 
the uh, Christy Minstrels had a hit in the summer between the end of the first season and the beginning of the second. So when NBC said, yeah, we're going to give you a contract for three more seasons. And, uh, and so the Andy Wave show called, I just forgot about the Christie, Christie Minstrels, called the Christies and Randy Sparks on the Christies. And he said, they said, uh, okay, we got a, three more seasons. You were on the first season. And so we'll see you in uh, whatever it was, the end of August for the first show. And they waited till the very end, by the way. This was like August 1st or something that they called the show was going to start in three weeks, which is kind of bizarre. NBC took a long time to figure this out. Anyway, they called Randy Sparks with the Christian Minstrels, and Randy said, well, we've had a hit in the previous summer, so it'll be double the money. Andy Williams people said, I don't think so. They called Doug Weston uh, at the, that owned the Troubadour, who went around that night, the Monday night hootenannies, and Monday night at the Troubadour, especially near a full moon, you could find everybody you've ever known because that was the center of the universe at the time in the 60s. The Troubadour on Monday night was the biggest deal. Anyway, boy, uh, Doug Weston, who owned the Troubadour, had gotten the call from the Andy Williams show saying, we need a folk band like the Christie Minstrels uh, in two weeks. So he went around to a bunch of people up that night at the, at the Monday Night Boot Manning and walked up to me and said, can you be at a rehearsal tomorrow at noon at such and such a place? I said, yes. Yeah. So apparently he said that to a bunch of other people. And we showed up, we had like 12 people, and we played some songs, played about three or four hours. That was on a Tuesday. On Thursday, we auditioned for the Andy Williams show, got the call back on the following Monday that yes, but we didn't like these two people, so we fired them or something. And we started the show a week later, not being a band at all. Having wow. been for this show, we're the world's worst folk band. <laughs> it was all awesome. <laughs> but for some reason I became the brunt of uh of jokes on the show and kind of the no I was the shortest guy <laughs> and playing the biggest instrument. <laughs> there, were, there were ten of us. Three mics, so there's all there's three people wrapped grouped around each mic, leaving me to bounce around, and it became a bit just. And so you had rapport with Andy, I assume. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, he was a he was a very sweet guy, a gentle guy. His stardom, his voice, was because he didn't like the beyond the quality of the voice, his uh, his range. He got because he learned and spent a year getting over the glottal, the from the yodel, uh, <clears throat> that noble thing. He was able to slide between his falsetto and wow. his real voice and use every one of those notes equally. And that that was what gave him something completely different than other singers of the time, like what's his name with his sweater. Who threw up before every show? Perry Perry Como? No. 
Barry Cohen was scared to death to walk out there and threw up before every show. And that's why. Really? Yeah. That's why he'd walk out all calm and nice. And that's where Andy got his persona. Wow. Yeah. And he was just great. He, it, the show was absolutely a delight. I would like to say that his wife. Claudine, Claudine. Claudine Langer would, would enter in the side door where the dressing rooms were, not in the public door. She'd come in the side door and stand in the dark, and we could feel the difference in the room. Everybody knew that she was in the room. There was something so magnetic. Wow. That that she was a gorgeous woman. I just remember there was a sketch on Saturday Night Live because there was something with skiing and was shooting a boyfriend or something happened with Claudine later, years later. Do you know what I'm talking about? There was a skiing accident with Claudine years yeah. later with a, yeah, anyway. So you must know, so you know Tracy Newman then I'm assuming. Yeah, yeah, for yeah, me. Yeah, Tracy is a good friend of mine. Um, so, all right, so, so, what, so you didn't turn down the show, but you got offered a show, you got offered a show? There was a writer on the show named Jack Douglas. Jack Douglas was a very tall fellow, a curmudgeon, who wrote a book called My Brother Was an Only Child. <laughs> That's very funny. It was really funny. He was the head writer for Andy. And so he would come up with ideas and would pitch shows to other production companies. And he had, he pitched one for Craig Smith, who was one of the singers in the Good Times. He was a very handsome young man, good mm-hmm. songwriter. He pitched a show for him, and he pitched a show for me. And Craig almost it almost went, and I don't know exactly what happened that it didn't. I think it got as far as a as a a pilot. I think they almost shot a pilot. Mine didn't get that far, but he didn't. Mm-hmm. He said, I got an idea for a show. You want to do it? And, yeah. So instead, I became, I went back to bass playing. Oh, damn. Oh, but you, you've had quite, quite, quite the, the careers. So, okay. So tell me about John Denver. Um, Delightful guy. One of the few people, one of the few stars who understood that there's a difference between John Denver, the star, and John Denver, the person. How so? I don't know. He just, he knew that, what's the, the a bass player that's been playing with Carol King? About Lee Sklar. No. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so this is a slightly different story, but it's illustrative of the concept that they, they did a set, they, they, they walk off and Carol says to the bass player, let's go up to the dressing room. He says, but there are all these people that want to talk to you. And she said, they just want to talk to Carol King. Let's do mm-hmm. and I go up to the dressing room and relax. She's able to see the difference between the public persona and the private person. Does that make sense? Yes. And John Denver was like that. He, he wasn't the star every minute of the day. He wasn't the big gun mm-hmm. of the day. He was just trying to do cool stuff and sing songs and just trying to have his, you know, be as folky and pleasant as, as he was. And he was just a delightful guy. And so 
they needed a bass player and uh, I was in the Naughty Swedes New Wave band just before punk hit America. And uh, it's a really fun band. And that's that picture you have with the, with the umbrella. In the I love that picture. <laughs> it was really fun. It was a great fun band. And uh, you know what? Uh, what was I talking about? You were talking about John Denver. Oh, yeah. And uh, so the New Wave band, we, we made a record. We sold it to Electra. Electra at that moment decided not to be a record company. They 80% of the records they produced were defective. They didn't have distributors that quit and one died and stuff. We couldn't get a record that we already had hits in three market. So Electra couldn't deal with the, the, the business of being a record company. I knew that was the end of the record business right there, 1980, 81. And so our band needed money. So John Denver offered me a lot of money to go and play. So I said, great, I'll put some money, I'll, I'll work there for a while until they get somebody that they like. Mm -hmm. And uh, and I'll put some money into the new, into the Naughty Sweeties band, which is what I did. Mm -hmm. And uh, although some people in the band don't remember it that way. <laughs> yeah. And uh, but so I was with it for about a year or something. And uh, it was just a life of a wonderful experience. We got to be on the Calypso, the, uh, what's his name, ship, uh, Cousteau, Jacques Cousteau. I wow. Know, things, forgive me. But yeah, it was great. Fabulous. Um, and you were playing with him sort of at the height of John Denver, yeah? Yeah. Yeah. The uh, huge, big, you know, $30,000. Uh, stadiums and that sort wow. of thing. Uh, was that Hal, fun? Yeah, it was. Well, it was uh, mostly. Hal Blaine was the drummer. Wow. Yeah. And Glenn D. Harden was the keyboard player. Mm -hmm. We sat, the band sat on a great big square, uh, or maybe 20 feet square, in the middle of which was a round uh, stage upon which John Denver stood. So that the 30,000 people could see him before big screens and all that. And uh, and Glenn D. Harden, the piano player, was in the opposite corner from me. And who's the one person that the bass player has to hear in order to know what's going on is the left hand of the piano player. Now, I would have said the drummer, but okay. Well, but I can hear how he's in my mix. Right. I'm the 11th band member, and there are 10 monitor mixes. Wow. And the one person that I needed to hear was the left hand of Glenn D. Harden's piano in order to play with him. Never was able to hear him. Glenn was never happy with me. There wasn't anything that apparently was nothing to be done because it never got repaired. Wow. Was always a problem. Every night, every show was a problem. I can't hear the one guy I really need to hear. So that for that reason, it kind of wasn't, it was it was work. But mm -hmm. well paid work and it was delightful and had a great time. Yeah. How about uh 
I was very surprised to see this credit, Sonny and Cher. I know you played with Cher as well, but Sonny and Cher, what, what, was, what was that like? Uh, delightful, actually. Uh, Sonny started, the, they broke up. Sonny decided that he wanted to go to, that he, that he missed doing it, number one. Number two, he didn't really need the money, but, uh, but he just needed something to do. And so he put together his own show, and he, and one of he booked Harris uh, in Reno and Tahoe and Vegas and stuff. Booked some nice places to play. And Matt Benton, Dave Hungate, Dean Parks, and Tom Canning were all North Texas State guys. And when they, when Sonny and Cher had their first round of on the road stuff, God bless you. You okay? Thank you. Uh, when they came through Dallas, that mm -hmm. band, Dean, Matt, Tom Canning, anyway, they were a house band at some place that Sonny and Cher played, and they played Sonny and Cher's show better than anybody had ever played it. So Sonny said, you guys got to come on the road with us. So everybody but Dean did, and they ended up out here. And some a year or two goes by, Sonny decides to put on his thing and he calls his own show, calls Matt Benton to put together a band. Matt and I've been playing with Matt Benton, so I joined the Sonny's band. And it was he wasn't the world's greatest singer, but he had he would show a, a film of their daughter, uh, Chelsea. Yeah? Chastity. Chastity, thank you. Who is no longer Chastity, who's now Chaz. Yeah. And uh, they, they had a film of her being a, a, a young girl, a three, four-year-old, five-year-old girl. And they would show this film in Sonny's show, and he would sing, Isn't she lovely? Isn't she wonderful? And, and we you know, played the Stevie Wonder song, Fabulous. Four times, four times on uh, in in the year and a half, two or three years or whatever it was we were together, he made me, he brought tears to my eyes. Oh. So beautifully, not with, with singer quality, but with intention. Isn't that lovely? He really was very moving. He was a very interesting guy and much deeper and broader and wider than, than his portrayal his public persona and then the two of them got back together so we were we continued playing with them for another couple of years and when they were together how was their energy fabulous they adored each other mm -hmm. really there was no animosity whatsoever they laughed and giggled she would she fell in love with the guitar player greg allman before that was bill ham who was pretty uh -huh. And Greg Allman, <laughs> and a great guitar player, brilliant guitar player, and Cher just, oh, and rightly so, he was just a delightful guy, uh, and uh, so that was before Greg, but mm -hmm. so, you know, they had this, Sonny and Cher had this relationship that was completely compatible and comfortable and no, no problems whatsoever, they were great. Funny, they were very funny people. 
Oh, very, yeah. Very smart people, both of them. They're so Terry people. told me there's a story about you and Cher at the Chateau Marmont and a phone call. Do you know what story I'm talking about? We don't. He but said there was a, a, a call from, from Kissinger. Do you remember this? Oh, yeah. Okay. Well, no, it wasn't Kissinger. But we uh, were Terry's getting every story wrong. I'm going to smack him around. I told you, you can't trust him. Uh -uh. Uh, he's completely untrustworthy. Uh, <laughs> uh, we were in Washington, D.C. at that hotel, the name of which escapes me across. The so street. it wasn't even the Chateau Marmont. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Yeah. We're in this hotel, famous hotel across the street from the White House, and Cher would all uh, would often have the band up or various people up, just you know, like you used to have uh, enclaves in at your house, soirees, mm -hmm. salons. Cher would always have a salon. She liked being around smart people and funny. And had a great time. There was always food and stuff. And uh, the phone rings one day, and she says, "Hello." Oh, hi, Jimmy. This was 78, I think. Hi, Jimmy. Anybody want to go a special tour of the White House? And we all had stuff to be on rehearsals or something to do, so we couldn't go. But she said, well, we can't go today. Can we do it tomorrow? And he said, well, there's something reason that we can't. So, okay, thanks. Right, and hung up. And it was Jimmy Carter. Wow. <laughs> And she called him Jimmy, and he was across the street as president. I love it. And she was like that with, you know, people all over the world. Princes, kings, paupers. You know, she's a, she's a wonderful lady. She's great. That is, that, I love that. Okay, so I also heard that... Um, that you got called at the last minute to be on a recording of one of my favorite songs. Is it true that you are on time on the Chambers Brothers time? Did you? I, I'm, I'm reluctant to admit that. I do know that Larry Carlton and I were brought in. Is that a live recording? I don't know. Either. That's, that's the problem is I can't remember what it is. It was a live recording, and the and the uh, mixer, the cord had gone out for the guitar and the bass. Mm -hmm. so the live mix was missing, so we were brought in. The two of us to overdub to the live mixes, and we did, I think we did like fifteen songs or something. And I honestly don't remember, but I did hear it on the radio. I went, gee, I think that's one of those songs. Well, I don't, I'm not sure. Really. Well, well, we'll we'll say you did. Yeah. What yeah. the hell? <laughs> and so, what about you? Have a long relationship with a long ago relationship that started with Jackson Brown. Back to the nitty gritty dirt band. Do you guys go back to the nitty gritty dirt band? Yeah, not that Jackson had anything to. Not he wasn't in the nitty gritty dirt band. Is that what you mean? Okay, so I read, now I would never have thought that, but I read something on Wikipedia that says that he was, that he started in there. No, you know, I wouldn't, I'd never heard that before, but I read it last night. I don't have any record. That he was a vocalist on there and then he left and I never heard that before, but I was going to ask you about it. Well, I, that's a new one on me. I don't think so. Jackson... I heard his, in at Seal Beach, a little club down there, I heard his first song 
the first couple of songs that he'd written, and they were fabulous, phenomenal. It was obvious right from the get that this guy is a different human. Yeah. So I don't I don't recall Jackson ever really being in a a band in situation at all, other than for three minutes. Uh, we had a band with it was called John David Jackson Brown. It was John David Souther and Jackson and myself, which obviously didn't go anywhere. <laughs> and what year was that? What year was that? I guess in 71, maybe, I don't know, somewhere around there. We were, uh, Glenn Fry and John David Souther and I were Bo Diddley's band before the Eagles at, in our, our big gig, we had done some tours with Bo and whenever he came to town we, or anything local, we'd play with him. But the bitter end, tried having a uh, a West Coast, Bitter End West, it was called. Re re really? Yeah, uh, right there at La Cienega in Santa Monica. It became the Star or Starwood or something years later. But anyway, uh, or somewhere right in there. Anyway, uh, it was only around for about a year and a half and it wasn't terribly successful. Well, when was that? I, I used to book the club that was originally the other end, next door to the Bitter End. It became the Rock and Roll Cafe. When was there a Bitter End West? 69, 70. Wow, I didn't know that. Hmm. Somewhere in there. When was the Eagles? When did they start? 71? Oh, God. I'm going to see them on th next Thursday. Cool. Yeah. Cool. I'm looking forward to it. Um, so, all right. So, so, all right. So, tell me about this band that you guys, this thing that you guys did. Band, and and uh, we we uh, Bo got the gig opening at the Bitter End West for Richard Pryor. Wow! In those days, a gig was two weeks, not one night. It was two weeks. But a gig at the Troubadour and all the clubs. You know, a gig two weeks. And uh, so we were there two the two weeks, and I never saw Richard Pryor except on the stage. And going in and out of his dressing room uh, because he was, uh, you know, apparently smoking crack, but he would come out and be exorbitantly funny and mm. free form. And, and nobody ever said, any, gee, what's messed up? No, never. Was he different every night? Yeah. Yeah, was not a set show at all. Mm -hmm. He was absolutely startling. He was. Brilliant. I still haven't any, heard anybody be as extemporaneous as that. He was just brilliant. Did you did you, so you kind of dabbled in con you you have a gift of the of the funny. Um is it something that you did you study? Did you does it just come did it just come naturally to you? Did you cultivate it? Um Humor is really, you know, death is easy. Humor is hard. <laughs> and uh, a friend was start when the when the Ash Grove on Melrose became the comedy store, mm -hmm. just as it was changing from one thing to the other. 
Billy Delbert, who was John Davidson's manager and a great fellow, uh, said that he was starting a comedy workshop, uh, beginning beginners comedy workshop, something like that. But he couldn't. Would I come down and do an opening ten minutes? Because he couldn't open with a professional comedian. Way too way too above the ability of these of the paying customers. And uh, and he couldn't open with one of them because they're not funny yet. So he came down and he said, would you come down and do 10 minutes? I did. I remember the first thing and the last thing that I said, and I don't remember anything in between. And I remember walking off the stage, walking out the door, down the street, two blocks to my car, getting in the car, driving to a gig on the San Diego freeway, on the 405 freeway, and, and stopping shaking about Slauson Avenue. <laughs> the most naked I've ever been, and I don't ever want that experience again. It was horrific. So I have such affection and respect for people who can stand up there and be funny when it is the hardest thing to do. Somebody opined recently that they thought that we, we don't have any more twins anymore. Not theoretically, no more twins. Nobody is, is uh, filtering the truth for us, showing us the truth through humorous filters. And uh, uh, Garrison Keyhoe was kind of the last one in my view. Um, George Carlin uh, was an example also, but really very few of the, but this person opined that comedians are the modern day philosophers. That's, this is where we're getting any honest to God view of the realities of, of our humanity. And at the best, it's true. At the worst, they're still funny. And that's <laughs> the hardest thing to do. It's just, I have such respect for them. So I love being funny. I, I like the odd song. I like the song, the song that songwriter, great songwriters who do that for a living, but also because that's what they do. Odd songs fall out of them. Randy Newman is able to make a career. I love it. Randy Newman. Have you had him on your show? Oh, no, but I would love to. I love Randy Newman. David Bromberg. There's so many um, that fit into the Don Prine. There's so many songwriters that was so funny. And yeah. 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 And, uh, and really give us a, a true uh, humorous look into our lives. They're so good at it. And so those are the songs that I like. Uh, Sean Camp, you know who that is? I don't. He's a, a wonderful Nashville songwriter, a very close friend of Guy Clark's and Roger Miller. He and Roger Miller were great friends. He does now, didn't you work with Roger Miller? I did. And uh, the, the, the last year, the Andy Williams show, in the audience, they took some seats out and they put a flat platform for solo acts. Roger was the first solo act because... He had he put out a record. The the promotion people 
promoted dang me. Dang me, gonna shake my head and hang me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All of Roger's songs, by the way, are pretty sad. But funny. Wow. Mm -hmm. Anyway, the other side of the record was uh, a good song and was a hit. So two hits in one week. First week, the record was out. He had two hits. Wow. Big deal. Somebody from Nashville said, uh, called Doug West in the Troubadour and said, can you put on Roger Miller as a solo act? And for the first time, Doug had three acts. For the first time he ever had three acts on one night. Roger was there for a week. During that week, Don Williams, Rogers, uh, Andy Williams' brother, went down to the Troubadour to hear this guy, Roger Miller, signing to a management contract, got him a NBC show because they put him on the Andy Williams show and he was funny and personable and NBC were perfect summer replacement guy from this one shot on one Andy Williams show as a solo performer and uh and the good time singers were on that show so that summer Roger did the summer replacement show but in between he would do fairs as we did our, Don Williams, our manager, had us booked us in all these fairs all over the place. And Roger would fly in and do a, a night here and there because he was a big star, a new, brand new, big country star. And wow, the people would just flock to him. So we were on the same show all that first summer of 60, see, 65, 66, summer of 66. So, we, so I got to know him then. And then years later in the late 70s, I joined the band as a bass player and he would call me up. He was courting Mary, his, his last wife, delightful lady, who I had known from when being in the Christian Minstrels in the 60s. And uh, Roger didn't know anybody out here anymore in the, um, in the late 70s. He'd moved to Nashville, didn't know anybody out here, hadn't been doing regular television, so he didn't have any of those contacts. He's courting Mary to fly out to take her to dinner and fancy stuff. And we didn't know anybody. So he called me at midnight. He said, what are you doing? Nothing. You want to come over? Yeah. So I go over and we sit there till three or four in the morning. And my favorite story, if I may, am I going on too long? No, 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 tell. So, so. Uh, in about 3.30 in the morning, a phone rings. And Roger says, without answering the phone yet, he, and he says, that has to be Glenn Campbell. He's going to go on The Tonight Show tomorrow and discovered just a minute ago that he doesn't have any material. <laughs> Nobody else would call on this phone, would call me at 3.30 in the morning, since <laughs> 7 before supper. And... Uh, so he picks up the phone, doesn't say hello. He just starts talking. And he talked for about 20 minutes. And it was hysterical. It was just wonderful. And then again, without saying goodbye, he just hung up the phone. He told a story, he had the punchline, hung up the phone. He said, turns to me and he says, you're going to see 75% of that on the Tonight Show tomorrow. 
And he'll get into that last story and he won't remember the punchline. And that's exactly what happened. Oh my God. Ian recorded it and on his cassette and yeah. it, studied it, got to the Tonight Show, got into that last, did the whole thing, the whole bit that Roger just made up. And that's how brilliant Roger was. Very funny. Everything had a trajectory built to the oh end. Oh my God. Yeah, it was. Yeah. That, wait a minute. How did Glenn Campbell get out of that? <laughs> he, he, he got to the end and he couldn't remember the punchline. And uh, Carson went to a commercial. Oh my God. That's hysterical. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's so hysterical. I, Roger and I were great friends, but we were that we were close enough that he would call me and ask just to have some com company. And, and we had a nice time. That's lovely. All right, so let's get current. Um, so, because people can come see, other than you being in Marrakesh, and I'm 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 thrilled that you're going, and disappointed that I'm going to be at the write-off room this Friday night, and you won't be there. But I know that I can come back another Friday night, and you will be there. Wait, what are you showing me? This isn't the deductions. What is this? This is this is the folder from Castles in Concert about Marrakesh. Oh, how fabulous! Wow, that looks very elegant. Um, oh, so, but tell us how people can come see you at the at the write off room most Friday nights. W what is this thing, the deductions that you guys do? Uh, you know, I can't divulge that. I have to. <laughs> uh, the write off room, A, Studio City, New mm -hmm. Club, South Side, uh, yeah, South Side of the Street. Built the building was built in 1926, I believe, or in the 20s, uh, by a uh, um, a, an entrepreneur lady who had a strip club in Hollywood and the police, she had to move to the valley where, where there was nothing at the time in the 20s except farms. And uh, because the police were giving her too much trouble and because she had the most beautiful strip ladies. <laughs> so they wanted some money, I'm, so I'm guessing. So she built, came out here and built this club Bill Lynch bought it not long ago, redone the whole thing, and has opened it as a write-off room. We had a very nice stage, lights and sound, and they have a bar, although they don't have any bartenders. I mean, they have two people that stand back there. They kind of know what they're doing. The waitresses, I mean, there's no waitresses, so you mm -hmm. have to work. Go up to the bar, yeah. Anyway, and uh, great bands and um, the deduction. And you play there with... Uh, a, a, an assemblage of fantastic musicians. Yes, they, they were, they're going to be great. Now, Dean Parks is an example. Mm -hmm. He's going to be big. <laughs> really, don't you think? I think he'll probably be pretty big. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Dylan O'Brien is mm -hmm. the ringleader and a brilliant songwriter. Mm -hmm. Kind of not a, kind of a jerk of a guy. <laughs> Uh, Jim Cox, the world's greatest piano player, and uh, one of many, and uh, Larry Goldings comes in sometimes and sits in on the organ. He's oh, brilliant on the organ. So is Jim. And James Cruz, great drummer. And uh, and we started with Kerry Park in the second guitar chair, but Kerry is doing solo gigs in uh, at wineries, and uh, so he. 
we, we can't let go of that stuff. So we have Jeff Perlman, the second guitar part, or some other people sometimes. And it's just that it, it, I'm so spoiled with these musicians because they listen. What a concept. They listen to each other as we're playing. It becomes music. Wow. It's so cool. And well, nobody, I'm nobody's just saying, listen to me. <laughs> well, I look forward to seeing you there very soon when you get back from Marrakesh. And I'm going to see George Deering is going to be there this week when you're not there. And also in Marrakesh, yeah. And George and, and Abe Laborio's playing. And, and Abe will be playing this week, I was told as well, yes. Oh, so I look forward to that. But also, I, before we go, I want to hear about one more thing in your life that is very interesting to me. You're part of a gentleman's club, a very exclusive gentleman's club that has kind of um, legend to it that, that uh, Ronald Reagan was a part of and Richard Nixon. What is this thing that you are a part of, David? The uh, Bohemian Grove. The Bohemian, Bohemian Grove, yes. The club started in San Francisco in the late 1800s. It became a place in the early 1900s for um, adjudicating the quality of art. One, one guy, a young man, had gone to the Sorbonne in Paris, taken some lessons, was a very good artist, so good that they accepted him at the Sorbonne. He came back being a member of the Bohemian Club. And so when somebody would bring a painting, he would look at it and tell them the good and the bad things about it because he knew. And being a member of the Bohemian Club, that's where he could be found. So people would come there and bring their art. And so the Bohemian Club became in the turn of the century, uh, of the last century, uh, as a place of of uh, adjudicating or if you bought something that the Bohemian Club artist liked, it had value because all these people had new money. Gold, uh, the earthquake, the contractors made huge fortunes, you know, rebuilding San Francisco. There's a lot of new money, but they didn't know what to do with it. They didn't have the history in the making of this money. This was all new money. So they went, oh, I want to buy some, some art. But you know what I mean? Well, they could go to the Bohemian Club and find out what was of value. So that that kind of put the Bohemian Club on the map a little bit at the time in San Francisco. And now Nate Richard Nixon was never a member. Kissinger. Hank, I was gonna say, what the hell was he doing there? Once and they said never again a sitting oh. president, too much trouble. Mm -hmm. So Richard Nixon, that was the reason that nobody, no sitting president can ever come again because it's just too much trouble. Can you give us an example, David, of like, I know you were there right after I met you over this past summer. Can you give us an example of something that happened this summer while you were there? Yeah, Victor Wooten. Do you know that name? I don't. Victor Wooten is probably as good a bass player as the planet would ever need. Ah. 
this guy is startling. He's been with Bama Fleck and the Flecktones for many years. He now has a solo career also, I believe. He's the sweetest, gentlest, smartest man. He lives outside of Nashville. He has a music camp, Victor Wooten. I don't know what the camp is called. And uh, he teaches children. And uh, um, he is warm, thoughtful, uh, musical, has music, his whole family, very musical. And uh, so a member brought Victor Wooten to the club. And that's one of the things is, is the, the gentleman's club. So you bring people of, of that have us, I'm going to say a great value, but that sounds elitist and I don't mean that. Just really cool people. Mm -hmm. uh, just worthy people, humans, you know, of all colors and races and stripes. Do we have Jews there? Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> Not Jews. <laughs> they don't let them in there. We have gay people. <laughs> you know, and on and on. It's a so, but these are delightful people to a to a person, and that's the gist of the club. It, it's a it's in support of the arts. I love that. In support of the arts. Because when I heard Reagan and Nixon, I'm thinking, oh, this is some right wing political thing you're part of. What is this? No, it's not that at all. That's the view, but it, and there are a lot of right wing people there, but they're all <laughs> you know. I'm a member. I'm not right wing, as an example. I'm just saying, you know. They're, it's it's a much different. It's no one thing at all. Like the way this sounds. So you know, everybody says, "Oh, that's where world decisions get made," and it's possible that they do, but they've never included me in their conversations. <laughs> <laughs> they to sing silly songs. Well, that would be nice. Well, David, I am I am so thrilled that I've had this opportunity to spend this time with you and to get to know you and I you feel like an old friend mm -hmm. and I so look forward to coming to hear you play and getting to know you better and um, I wish you a, a bon voyage a safe trip a wonderful journey thank you you're very kind can I mention that my significant other Carolyn Baker you may is cool enough to put up some of my recordings on Bandcamp. I'm going to put the link to your Bandcamp in the liner notes to this show so that people can find it. Thank you. That's where I'll look so I can find it. <laughs> and I will do that so that people will be able to find it after the show. Thank you so much for doing this, David. It's been delightful. Before I go, yes. is it time for one, for three minutes? Yeah. Hell yeah. Friends, listen well, let me tell you a story. It happened like just yesterday. Footloose young feller ran off with the circus, much to his mother's dismay. He was cleaning up after the elephant's win. A hot flying trapeze girl smiled down in search of a handsome companion because she just broken up with a clown. <laughs> One graceful aerial flip, he was smitten with her 
and her little tutu. He stood there, love struck. He almost stumbled right into the elephants doing their tricks, and the ringmaster smiled, tipped his top hat, and said, Son, better do to your heart. His words rang true right there under the bleachers. Soon after, the big top went dark. She whispered, be careful, on a train to the very next town. A handful of midgets who rode unicycles pedaled by with one smile and four frowns. <laughs> he had a big sense of uneasiness when his new sweetheart opened her door. He knew when he saw the clown standing behind her, in front of the bear stood one more. Skinny feller standing on stilts first read the words that I wrote. I promise to never again give my heart to some high flying trapeze girl. Goodbye, cruel circus. Climb off to join the world. Fantastic. That's a perfect place to say good night. Thank you, David. That was wonderful. Thank you so much, David Jackson, everybody. Uh, thank you. I can't wait for more of you. Thanks so much, David. Bye-bye.